There's a phrase I've been repeating as I daydream my way through this Advent, maybe because Psalm 62 has been swirling in my spirit for 10 months now. The phrase is, I can't wait. That's what my kids say when they know they have to, when no amount of parent prodding pushes us into conceding they're going to have to wait. It's not just kids, though. It's adults, too. We can't wait either. We can't wait for the angry diagnoses that pursue us unrelenting to turn to health and to wholeness. We can't wait. Can't wait for all the wrongs that seem off so strong like COVID and injustice and inequity to realize God is the ruler yet and God has healing in his heart. God has peace on his mind. God gives to us more than we dare to ask or imagine so you can give, you can share, you can be generous. I can't wait. That's Advent. That's what we say when we have no choice. I want you to wait with me in Luke 1. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Mary was perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and bear a son, and you'll name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said, How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. The angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Even now, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son, and she who was said to be barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Here am I. Servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's again Luke 1, 26 through 38. You're on a screen, so hit pause if you want to. Find a Bible, reread it for yourself. Jot down the insights that are stirring in your spirit and send them my way. I'd love to see what the Spirit is doing in your heart. Uh, Here's where my heart is beating. Advent waiting invites proximity naming and identity claiming. In the sixth month, a 
apparently Luke is marking time now according to Elizabeth's conception of John the Baptist, of whom it was said, he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's the sixth month. Which is kind of interesting because the angel shows up to Mary to announce a different child, another son, and all of time would then be marked by his life. The life of Jesus Christ marks time. This is the year 2020 for one reason. Jesus was born about 2020 years ago. So every time you write a little date on your check, if you still write checks, or open your iPhone and hit the calendar app, you are receiving the announcement again. You'll bear a son. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of God. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I got this from a former Pillarite, now Duke Divinity student, Ben Davison. Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But one day, that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Isn't that awesome? That was just for fun. Now, naming proximity. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel came and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. The angel names for Mary proximity. The Lord is with you. And if you don't mind my stretching that a bit, the angel announcement to Mary about the incarnation, the incarnation of God and the person of Jesus Christ who would live and die to forgive and resurrect to redeem offers the Spirit so it's True still, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you behind your mask. The Lord is with you amidst quarantine and isolation. The Lord is with you as you make the semicircle into your neighbor's yard because the dad pushing the strollers coming this way and you sort of turn your head and mumble hello. The Lord is with you. And Mary's response is fascinating to me. This is how Luke describes it, but she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. In other words, as I've always assumed, Mary was a bit confused by his words and sort of thought for a while about what they might mean. It's interesting, this this story with Mary is a parallel story to the one with Zechariah and Elizabeth. The angel shows up to Zechariah and, and Zechariah is described as terrified. But Mary's described as perplexed. They're the same word. Zechariah's terrified, just to show you I'm not making this up, is terasso. Mary's perplexed is dia terasso. Mary's perplexed is doubly terasso. She's more terrified than Zechariah. Dia terasso. She's doubly agitated. Now here's what's fascinating. She hasn't even received the announcement yet. The angel has not said word one about the king of the universe being born in a stable. She's heard nothing about your kingdom, his kingdom will have no end. She's got no idea about the Holy Spirit coming upon you and the most high overshadowing you. All she got was greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you and she's doubly agitated. In a world of complacency and apathy and basically practical atheism, the proximity of Christ to us is agitating. We don't have... Concepts for such things. We don't have categories for that. And yet, by the Spirit of God, it's true still. The Lord is with you. 
Augustine says, God is nearer to me than I am to myself. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. A family secret. I grew up in the Reformed tradition, and so over time was nurtured into a deep love for the historic Christian liturgy in worship. I mean, when I was really young, I probably fell asleep a little bit, but over time, there was this deep love for the historic Christian liturgy and worship. My beloved wife, Kristen, grew up in a different tradition where such outspoken admiration for liturgy wasn't quite as present. So while we were dating, we this is kind of embarrassing to say, we had some like pretty intense conversations about liturgy. You want to talk about needing a life. We actually broke up over tedious theological details around baptism. We got back together. We've been married. She's for 20 years or something. She's so kind and so gracious and so generous. She's been living her way into a love for things liturgical too. So there's this favorite part of mine in our liturgical life when we greet each other and someone says, the Lord be with you. And everyone shouts back. And also with you, well, My beloved wife, Kristen, has adapted that liturgical call and response and offers it to our children wherever they go all the time. She has adapted the Lord be with you, and she says to them, the Lord is with you, off to school, the Lord is with you, out with friends, the Lord is with you, around the block on rollerblades, the Lord is with you. Now, to be entirely honest, when I hear her say it, there's this like deep, self-righteous, liturgical thing that rises up in me. No, no, no. It's the Lord be with you, not the Lord is with you. I've never actually shared that with her, so don't tell her. And then I come across Luke 1. The angel shows up to Mary. The Lord is with you. Not a liturgical greeting. A God promise. A theological reality. Proximity. I've been reading the book, The Hungering Dark, this Advent by Frederick Buechner. This is awesome. Those who believe in God can never, in a way, be sure of him again. Once they've seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he'll appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he'll descend in his wild pursuit of humanity. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Advent waiting invites proximity naming and identity claiming. The angel goes on to make the announcement, the the holy conception, the virgin birth, the incarnation. He'll be great. Of his kingdom, there'll be no end. Nothing is impossible with God. And appropriately, Mary pauses for a moment and says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. It's a legitimate question. And it's only fair then to compare again the experience with Zechariah. He got an angel too. He got an announcement too. He asked a question too. How will I know that this is so? He goes mute because his question was born out of disbelief. Mary gets a promise of the incarnation because apparently she believed. Which makes me think it's not so much the questions that are the issue. It's the orientation of the heart behind the questions. Curiosity, wondering, interest. 
the angel makes this stunning proclamation, nothing will be impossible with God. And here's Mary's response. Here I am, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She goes from doubly agitated, thoroughly disrupted to, here I am, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel's announcement was a proclamation of what God was about to do in human history, what God would accomplish, what God would achieve. There was no requirement on Mary to achieve or to accomplish or to hurry up and get done. All she had to do was say, Here am I, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She was free to be Mary. She was free to be herself. You're free to be you because God acts. God does. The king reigns. Christ rules. So here am I, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You're not a PhD. You're not a professor. You're not a CEO. You're not a president. You're not an employer. You're not an employee. You're not a kid. You're not a parent. You're a servant of Christ. And everything else falls underneath. And everything else is redefined by that truest identity. You are a servant of Jesus Christ because of what God does in the world. You don't have to hurry around and scurry about to achieve and accomplish, to get it done. I can't stand the phrase, we're going to change the world. You can't do that. You're not going to do that. You'll never do that. It's more than you can handle. It's more than you can take. And it's heresy. Jesus Christ changes the world, and you're a servant of Christ. Here I am, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You're free. You're free to be you. A servant of Christ first. A servant of Christ foremost. A servant of Christ always. I was listening to a podcast, uh, an interview with Fleming Rutledge, the great American preacher. I had to put it on like half speed so I could type this out. The claim of the Christian faith in its most robust form is that God has spoken. He has spoken in his word and he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ, who himself is the word in person. And everything else derives from that. Everything else, everything, she says. The preacher can open up the way that the Scripture in all parts proclaims the gospel of prevenient grace so that we're empowered to do things we thought we could never do. The preacher can open up the way that the Scripture in all its parts proclaims the gospel of prevenient grace. God acts first so that we are empowered to do things we thought we could never do. Here am I, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Or how about this from Augustine again? Look, you're here, freeing us from our unhappy wandering, setting us firmly on your track, comforting us and saying, run the race, I'll carry you. I'll carry you clear to the end. And even at the end, I'll carry you. Here am I, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You're free. You're released from the burden and the expectation, God acts. Mary goes from double agitation to willing servant because God acts in the world. I had the privilege this week of participating in the funeral service of Herman Canis. Herm Canis 
was a giant of a man, kind and tender. His heart of love was so deep, and he loved a lot. When I was like 23 years old, a first-year student in the seminary, I had an internship with Hope College's Campus Ministries, and he funded the internship. He gave me a scholarship, so I got to go to their Lake Michigan home. I thanked them, and he prayed for me, and I experienced the abundance of their hospitality. Uh, Herman is the father to Michael Canis, father-in-law to Michael's beloved Tina Canis. They have three sons, Grayson, Christian, and Noah. And three years ago, our hearts broke as we all said goodbye with them to Herman's granddaughter, Caroline, nine-year-old Peaches. They called her Herm, read to her every evening as she battled the brain tumor. Herm prayed for her in the darkness of the day and the anxiety of the night. It was Herm who offered the eulogy to Peaches around their graveside nearly three years ago, and I think it was Herm who at that same graveside invited us to sing the doxology. And now he is singing it in full. He was an accomplished human being. Uh, But this is what the family wanted said of him. This is what they put in his obituary. Herman had a humble, homespun approach to life, probably because he was raised on a farm in Minnesota, the son of Dutch immigrants. He had much more than usual of life's experiences. His life would stand out if if that is what I were to tell you about now. But all the things of this life that end were of no significance to him compared to intimacy with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in pursuit of his kingdom. There it is. That's it. Of all the things in this life, nothing compared to him as much as intimacy with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in pursuit of his kingdom. Here I am, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Be free. Be at peace be you, servant of Christ, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.